Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 10th audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will discuss sexuality and some of the key theorists in queer theory, sexual orientation, heteronormativity, and homonormativity. This is a pretty theory-heavy day. Let's get started. Yeah, walk into the party and I spotted shawty, she holding a bit and she turned and smiling. Yeah, I know she got here before me, but look like her pupils are clear. I've been craving a sober connection, confession. I knew that she'd probably be here because during the week when she all up and stressing and calling and texting, I tend to appear. I got a fetish for taking the problems away, so whenever I'm leaving, she want me to stay. I've been looking for gumption and trying to be brave, but when I'm around you, I just cannot behave. The world is so full of production, I think she's alone a cappella. So I'm nervously running through words in my mind till I find a good way I can tell her. I really like what you For today's class, we have two songs of the day. It was really hard to narrow down which song I wanted to choose, so today's class will start with Chica's Can't Explain It and will close with Ravina's Honey. Chica is an American rapper and singer who identifies as bisexual and addresses her sexuality in her music and videos. In her video for Can't Explain It, she put a queer spin on A Different World, one of her favorite sitcoms which followed the life of students at Hillman College a fictional, historically black college in Virginia. Class will end with a segment of the song Honey by Ravina. Ravina Aurora, known as Ravina, is an American singer and songwriter who grew up in a traditional Sikh household. She identifies as bisexual and wrote in a 2018 Twitter post about coming out. I was so nervous to come out as bi and afraid of biphobia, but instead I feel so embraced and loved. Wow, thank you. Ravina specializes in contemporary R&B with traditions from the South Asian diaspora. I recommend watching both music videos due to their fantastic art direction. Let's begin with some terms so that we're all on the same page. The first is LGBTQ+. This acronym stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. The plus sign is a key part of what is called the endless acronym. You may see other letters like a second Q, which stands for questioning, Occasionally, you will see other letters like a P for pansexual or A for asexual, meaning a person who is not sexually attracted to others. There are various debates within the intersex community about whether or not I for intersex should be added. The acronym developed as part of the gay rights movement. In the 1980s, for example, you would see signage for lesbian and gay organizations where lesbians and gay men would organize or socialize together. However, that terminology did not encompass the experiences of everyone involved. Next, B for bisexual was added. Bisexuality has a couple of definitions. For some people, they define it as attracted to both genders. However, this implies a gender binary. For some people, they define it as being attracted to both their own gender 
and other genders. Here we see overlap with pansexual, which means attracted to people regardless of their gender identity or sex. In the building of the acronym, T represents trans, which is a history we will talk about more in the next lecture, particularly the move from the terms transsexual to transgender. The Q doesn't necessarily get added until the 1990s and later. Q stands for queer. The term queer was originally a pejorative or insult to mean that someone was strange or odd. In 1989 and into the 1990s, activists, especially those from the ACT UP organization, which centered on the HIV AIDS crisis, began to reclaim the term. Rather than queer being an insult, queer became an umbrella term to speak about sexual orientation and gender. Queer has become a kind of shorthand to speak about these topics and a term that some people identify with. People may identify with several words within the endless acronym. For example, I identify as a bisexual woman and as a queer person. People may find that some terms work better to describe their personal experiences, feelings, and identities. Certain terms may hold different connotations in different communities. However, it is important to recognize that for some people, especially from older generations and from some communities, queer continues to be a pejorative. For some people, the term queer is hurtful. It's important to respect the ways in which people self-identify. Queer, related to sexuality and gender, as a term can be a noun, an adjective, and even a verb. Let me explain. Queer as an adjective is used in a way that someone can self-identify with. For example, the sentence, I am queer. Queer is used to describe. Queer as a noun is used with certain communities in slang, but queer as an adjective is more commonplace. For example, I prefer to say I am a queer person rather than I am a queer. Again, use the terms that someone prefers to self-identify with. What do I mean by queer as a verb? Within queer theory, which is a field of study that emerged out of women's studies, gender studies, and sexuality studies, and is highly influenced by post-structuralism, you may hear phrases like queering the center or too queer. These phrases usually refer to making something or addressing something that is non-normative or differs from the norm. There are debates about whether or not it is appropriate to use too queer as a metaphor. Queer can refer to sexual orientation to refer to people who are not heterosexual. To add some clarity, heterosexual means romantic and or sexual attraction to the opposite sex, primarily working within a gender binary. Homosexual refers to the same sex attraction. Gender queer refers to someone who has a gender identity outside of the binary gender system. Some people who are transgender identify as gender queer and some transgender people do not. I realize that these are a lot of terms and it might seem confusing if you haven't been exposed to these terms before. It is also important to understand the history of these terms. Each of these terms has their own histories and come into usage at various times. This means that people in one generation may use terms that are no longer used as frequently. New terms are created in order to try to capture people's experiences and identities. Sexuality is also fluid and may shift throughout an individual's lifetime. At some points in a person's life, some terms may describe their experiences better than other terms. So, you may have heard the phrase that, or the idea that the homosexual was an invention of the 19th century. Here's what that phrase actually means. It does not mean that same sex or same gender attraction did not exist before the 19th century. We can see many examples of same sex attraction throughout history 
throughout cultures all over the planet. We've also discussed the ways that many cultures have an understanding of gender that is more than the gender binary. We can see examples of same-sex attraction, romance, and sex across history. With the sentence, the homosexual was an invention of the 19th century, actually means is that the term homosexual itself was not invented until the 19th century. Prior to the late 1860s, the term homosexual had not been coined. Within the history of sexology, or the study of sexuality, we can see important moments such as when German lawyer, journalist, and author Karl Heinrich Ulrichs publicly defended homosexuality in 1867. He is seen as one of the key figures who led to the modern gay rights movement. Ulrich used terms like earning to describe men who are attracted to men. At the end of the 19th century, there's also the development of the concept of sexual inversion, popularized by sexologists such as Richard von Kraft Ebbing and Havelock Ellis. The idea of the sexual invert is a somewhat different conceptualization of sexual orientation and sexuality than how we tend to think about it today. Sexual inversion was described as an inborn reversal of gender traits. Male inverts were inclined to traditionally female pursuits and dress, and vice versa. The sexologist Richard von Kraft Ebbing describes female sexual inversion as the masculine soul heaving in the female bosom. What is interesting is that with the emphasis on gender role reversal, the theory of sexual inversion seems to be closer in describing transgender experiences which did not yet exist as a separate concept at the time. To be clear, I'm not saying that sexual inversion theory is the same thing as transgender people's experiences. I'm mentioning, rather, the connections because I want us to really emphasize how different terms are historically situated and thus actually impact how we conceptualize identity and experience. So, the late 19th century and early 20th century is sometimes called the first sexual revolution, where policing and regulating sexuality did not end, but changed. We can see new forms of knowledge creation about sexuality in medicine, science, schools, psychiatry, and psychology. It is also important to note that the emergence of a modern homosexual identity is usually traced to the late 19th century and was created at the same time as heterosexuality. Let me say this again for emphasis. The creation of the concept of homosexuality also created the concept of heterosexuality. The sexuality binary introduced the homosexual as a new species of being, according to theorist Michel Foucault in his classic text, The History of Sexuality, which was published in 1976. Homosexuality and heterosexuality are not inherent or ahistorical. The practices may have always existed in humans, but the identity did not. So even before the homosexual was invented, or before the word homosexual existed as an identity, gay stuff was always happening. Lesbianism as a concept came a little later on. The reason has to do with sexism. <laughs> no surprise! <laughs> The reason has to do with the sexist belief that women did not have active sexual desires like men. The idea that women couldn't be queer because their desire was seen as passive and always in response to masculine desire was the reason why the conceptualization of the category of lesbian came later. However, for some women, this allowed them a kind of freedom. 
One example of this is that some mid-19th century women lived together in what was known as Boston marriages. Sexuality, as we can understand it today, is a modernist concept. Our understanding of sexuality as a category is relatively new. Michel Foucault's ideas about this topic have been hugely influential in many humanities and social science disciplines. He is most well known for The History of Sexuality from 1976 and Discipline and Punish from 1975 and his focus on discourse. Discourse is how we communicate ideas about people, things, the world around us. It shapes how we are able to think about and know. Foucault writes that some discourses have created meaning systems that have been legitimized by institutions and have gained the status and currency or truth. He asks us to think about the question, how does something become true? He has looked specifically at the discursive social construction of sexuality. In his view, there is no natural, ahistorical sexual identity. An understanding of how these and other discursive constructions are formed may open the way for change and contestation. So, the term gay doesn't come into use to refer to sexual orientation until the 20th century. The word transsexual doesn't come into usage until the 1940s. Terms have histories and they also impact, as Foucault discusses. There are debates between historians about how to refer to people who engaged in same-sex activity in the past. Do you call them gay or lesbian if they lived during a period of time before these terms existed? If they lived in the 15th century, there is no way that they could have self-identified as gay because the term did not exist. So is it wrong to call them gay? I like the term lesbian-like. Lesbian-like is a term introduced in 1988 by medieval historian Judith Bennett in response to the gap between scholars who speak of lesbians in all historical periods and those who deny the very possibility of their existence before the end of the 19th century. By using a term like lesbian-like, we can speak to parallels without being ahistorical. As people in the present, we're still speaking about the past through our own lens, but this way we are not misapplying terms to people from the past who conceived of themselves differently. Some terms regarding sexual orientation and gender are more recent. Two-spirit refers to a person who identifies as having both a masculine and feminine spirit and is used by some indigenous people to describe their sexual, gender, and or spiritual identity. It is an umbrella term that can encompass same-sex attraction and a wide variety of gender variants, including people who might be described in Canadian culture as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, genderqueer, or have multiple gender identities. Elder Myra Laramie is often credited for proposing the use of the term two-spirit during the third annual Intertribal Native American First Nations Gay and Lesbian American Conference held in Winnipeg in 1990. The term is a translation of the Anishinaabe Moan term for two spirits. Some people may prefer to use terms from their own indigenous languages to describe same-sex attraction or gender variance. Some indigenous languages do not have terms to describe sexual identity such as gay, lesbian, or bisexual. Not everyone uses the term two-spirit. Some people identify as indigenous and as a lesbian, for example. All of this is to say, terminology can be complicated and terms shift over time. In 50 years, new generations may conceive of their sexual orientations or gender very differently than we might today. 
Now, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and bring us back to Foucault. I didn't assign Foucault because there are only so many texts I can assign, and it is likely that you will read his work in other classes. Back in the day when I was an undergrad, his History of Sexuality was assigned in five of my classes. However, I will go over a few key concepts from him that impact a lot of the discussions that we tend to have around sexuality. In the transcript, I've also linked to a fun infographic of Foucault's repressive hypothesis, which I'm going to talk about. So let's start with Foucault on the repressive hypothesis. Have you ever heard people say, we never talk about sex in our society, we are repressed? This is the repressive hypothesis, which is the commonly held viewpoint that since the rise of the bourgeoisie, sex and sexuality have become private, regulated, and repressed. So Foucault critiques this. He says that we actually talk about sexuality all the time. We also spend a lot of time talking about how we don't talk about sexuality all the time. But he wants to emphasize how we're always talking about sexuality. He charts this shift in Western society of going from talking to one's priest to shifting to psychiatry and psychologists. The key components of his theory are that we end up repressing all sex outside of heterosexual marriage bed, out of the heterosexual marriage bed, such as sex between unmarried people, masturbation, and non-heterosexual sex. These acts are what theorist Gail Rubin refers to as the bad outer limits, which exist outside of the charmed circle of sexuality. She describes this concept in her work, Thinking Sex, from 1984. This piece is also pretty key in the development of queer theory and sexuality studies. Please note that she is saying that society treats certain sexual acts as deviant. She isn't agreeing with these categories. Okay, so Foucault then says that we have these outlets of confession where people would confess their improper sexual feelings. Originally, this was done via confession at church. Then he argues that this is changed to prostitution and psychiatry and that this continues to this day. Well, at least when he published this book in the 70s. So he says that there is pleasure in confession, both in the act of confessing and in being confessed too. Foucault suggests the repressive hypothesis is an attempt to give revolutionary importance to discourse on sexuality. In doing so, it makes talking about sex defiant and revolutionary. He doesn't aim to fully contradict the hypothesis, the repressive hypothesis, but to examine why and how sexuality is made an object of discussion. The main takeaway from Foucault here is that we constantly talk about how we can't talk about sex. Another big contribution Foucault has made is his theory of power. Foucault has a particular understanding of power. He doesn't believe that power is a structure or an institution, but is a name that we give to complex relationships in a particular society. Power is productive and it can come from everywhere. It's not just top down, but is instead a web of power relations. A key point about Foucault's approach to power is that it transcends politics and sees power as an everyday, socialized and embodied phenomenon. He makes the connection between power, knowledge and discourse. Another key takeaway from Foucault's idea of power is that even though power comes from everywhere, we're not helpless. Where there is power, Foucault says that there is resistance. 
His views on power might make more sense within the context of how he describes biopower, which is his theory that builds on his idea of necropolitics. Biopower and biopolitics is about having power over other bodies. As he describes on page 140 of the History of Sexuality, Volume 1, it is, and I quote, an explosion of numerous and diverse techniques for achieving the subjugation of bodies and the control of populations. Biopower focuses on different forms of power than traditional modes. He argues that we used to be controlled by the threat of death from a sovereign such as a king, but society changed and now we have to rationally justify power. The discourse has shifted to protecting life instead of threatening death as this justification for control. This biopower is maintained by acts such as eugenics, hysteria diagnosis, and forced sterilization, primarily targeted at racialized people, women who were rebellious, people in mixed-race relationships, people with disabilities, and poor people. This biopower is also maintained through institutions. Institutions function as disciplinary mechanisms. We can see this with the asylum, the prison, and school. We can also see this too enacted via stoplights, as much as the police officer. Foucault is a quite important figure in the development of queer theory. Remember when I talked about Foucault writing that some discourses have created meaning systems that have been legitimized by institutions and have gained the status and currency or truth? When he asks us to think about the question, how does something become true? He is actually drawing from a long intellectual history of theory. Chris Rodley's post on post-structuralism explained by hipster beards explains this intellectual history really well, and I'm going to draw heavily from that piece in order to talk about the move from structuralism to post-structuralism to queer theory. Let's take a deep breath and then dive in. Okay, so in the early 20th century, a linguist called Ferdinand de Saussure tried to un- answer a simple question, how do signs make meaning? Saussure said that every sign is divided into two parts, the signifier and the signified. He said that signs are arbitrary. In other words, there's nothing inherent about a signifier that would signify something. The signifier could as easily have been something else. Signifiers are arbitrary, not essential. It's important to understand within this theory that signs aren't simply labels for real things. They actually constitute reality. Different cultures have different signs for the same thing, and the concept that those signs create is different too. We can apply this to what Foucault was saying about sexuality, right? By creating the term homosexual, the term constitutes a new reality, creating both the homosexual and the heterosexual. The sign is culturally dependent. A different culture may use a different word that constitutes another reality. Like I said, Ferdinand de Saussure is a linguist. Language here is key. A key insight of Saussure is that signs make meaning through difference. The heterosexual only comes into being because of the creation of the category of homosexual. Each sign we use is chosen from what Saussure called a paradigm of available options. Once we've chosen a sign, we arrange it with other choices in an arrangement called a syntagem. Another example of a syntagem is the sentence. These other choices impact the meaning of the sign. Combining signs into different syntagems 
can radically change the meaning. This invisible structure of paradigm and syntagem is how we make meaning, which is why Saussure's ideas are called structuralism. In the 1950s and 1960s, structuralism became a popular tool for analyzing culture. However, by the 1970s, some French thinkers came to challenge the idea of structuralism, hearkening in post-structuralism. See, structuralism had some big gaps, particularly related to how signs make meaning. Signs don't produce one fixed meaning. One of the leading post-structuralists, Jack Derrida, described meaning as being constantly deferred. Signifiers don't point to an objective meaning. They just refer to other signs, which in turn point to yet other signs. Derrida also criticized the tendency of structuralists to think in binary oppositions, like beard or clean-shaven, gay or straight. He urged us to deconstruct these pairs, which he called violent hierarchies, by upturning them and showing the interplay between them. Meanwhile, Michel Foucault showed how meanings change over time, creating power relationships and molding our identities. How was the homosexual invented? Who benefits from its invention? How does this concept of the homosexual shape how we think and act? Another post-structuralist, John Baudrillard, said that the signs don't actually refer to things anymore. Signs construct their own reality, made up entirely of other signs, which he called hyperreality. Do the Butler use post-structuralist ideas to think about gender, arguing, like signs, gender doesn't have a fixed essence? Rat, remember when we talked about her theory of gender performativity earlier? She's part of this intellectual lineage. Queer theorists have used post-structuralism to reject the idea of being either gay or straight. This puts sexuality on a spectrum. Okay, so that was pretty theory-heavy. It's okay if you didn't get all of that or even really much of that. I just want to introduce you to these concepts and you can build on them in further courses. Today's reading charts out what it was like for one person being involved in lesbian communities and activism and interacting with these theories. I really like this piece by Kathy Rudy in Radical Feminism, Lesbian Separatism, and Queer Theory from 2001. Rudy writes from a historical and theoretical perspective while incorporating her own personal experiences. As she says, I write here, a history as told by a subject within history. In 1980, she moved to Durham, North Carolina to work for the lesbian organization Lady Slipper, which was dedicated to promoting women's, read as lesbian music, and to live among the lesbian community there. She then talks about what it meant to later go to grad school and learn about queer theory and how that changed some of the ways that she related to her lesbian community in Durham. She talks about what the lesbian feminist community was like for her in the 1970s and 1980s as a lesbian and how it influenced her for the rest of her life. Rudy writes, In graduate school, however, I found new friends and newly emerging theories in postmodern feminism that reflected for me the serious limitations of a politics based solely on racial, ethnic, gender, sexual preference, or class characteristics. Around 1989, the entire world of feminist theory had become suddenly energized with deconstruction. Works in the emerging field of queer theory marked the beginning of an era which directly attacked, from feminist perspectives, the essentialist presuppositions circulating in radical feminist communities. 
These feminist theories prodded us to question our attachment to radical feminism's stable category of woman, to think of women's liberation as an event involving women only, they said, was not only to miss the complexities of oppression, but was to also assume and posit the very category that itself perpetuates injustice, end quote. I cite this piece because I think it really speaks to the way that queer theory can be both useful and not useful at the same time, and how it can be disruptive. Rudy thinks that while queer theory holds huge revolutionary potential, we shouldn't throw out radical feminism completely. Radical feminism's focus on care and connection should be revitalized in queer politics. She argues that we can destabilize gender, but still validate and pay attention to women's issues. Rudy says that while queer theory often talks about the public and political, the home needs to remain an area of struggle and critique. Queer theory wants to destroy and deconstruct categories like race, gender, and sex. She argues that, but for now, the effects of these constructions are real. We can't throw them out and ignore the real material effects of these categories in our lives. So again, here I want to emphasize that while something may be socially constructed, we still feel the effects. I really like this piece because it personalizes these tensions. If you're interested in theory more, I recommend Bobby Benedicto's course on queer theory and his Intro Sexual Diversity Studies course. Before we wrap up, there are two last concepts that I want to introduce you to in this lecture, heteronormativity and homonormativity. Heteronormativity is a term influenced in part by Adrian Rich's essay, Compulsory, Compulsory, Heterosexuality and Lesbian Existence from 1980, where she argues that in our patriarchal culture, heterosexuality is seen as the only possibility for women. She challenges this by affirming the reality of lesbian existence. Remember, this piece is from 1980. The term heteronormativity was coined by Michael Warner in Introduction, Fear of a Queer Planet in 1991 and is quite related to Rich's idea of compulsory heterosexuality. Heteronormativity reinforces ideology of heterosexuality as the normal and natural sexuality. Under heteronormativity, people of all other orientations are marked as deviant, are stigmatized, and may be persecuted. Heteronormative societies treat heterosexuality as ahistorical, although as we discussed today, this isn't actually the case. Heteronormativity is not just about individual sexual orientations. It's really about the institution of heterosexuality and its implicit values and power structures. In this theory, gender roles and expectations help to fortify compulsory heterosexuality. This works through status quo, tradition, family pressure, institutional power, media, marketing, and more. An example of heteronormativity is the idea that only gay people have to come out of the closet because you're assumed to be straight otherwise. Heteronormativity leads to straight privilege. In many places, it is still legal to be gay. In Canada and in the United States, where it is now legal to be gay or queer, legal rights are still constrained for non-straight people. We can see examples of that in cases of being able to adopt children. In the States, it wasn't until July of 2020 that it became illegal to fire employees because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. July 2020. While heteronormativity relies on heterosexuality as being understood as normative or the norm, 
homonormativity establishes normativity for queer people. Okay, so homonormativity is usually understood as queer people wanting to adopt cultural values of a heteronormative society. It is seen as a we're just like you assimilation. Homonormativity rewards gay people who mimic heterosexual standards. Our society rewards those who do so, identifying them as the most worthy and deserving of visibility and rights. Lisa Dugan is a scholar who writes about homonormativity. She describes it as a politics that does not contest dominant heteronormative assumptions and institutions, but upholds and sustains them, while promising the possibility of a demobilized gay constituency and a privatized, depoliticized gay culture anchored in domesticity and consumption. So that's from a 2003 work. Homonormativity creates a binary of an acceptable model of homosexuality and a deviant form, with the acceptable model focusing on gay marriage, gays in the military, and in the nuclear family. The critique of homonormativity came up especially over the topic of gay marriage, with the critique that was the desire of upper-middle-class gay couples wanting to assimilate and use their privilege to push marriage to the front of the gay rights agenda. The counter-argument was that marriage meant the ability for couples to get health care, visit their loved ones in a hospital, maintain custody of children, immigration rights, and other rights which are tied in the United States and Canada to marriage. Some activists were mad that the push for gay marriage came at the expense of other needs within LGBTQ communities linked to survival. Homonormativity speaks to the assumption that all queer people want to be part of the dominant mainstream heterosexual culture. Homonormativity also impacts which of the LGBTQ community members are the most visible, which is more likely to be a cisgender, gender normative, white, middle-class, gay-identifying person. Homonormativity gets linked with corporate influence and capitalism. So you might be surprised a bit by today's lecture. You might think, where's the sex? This lecture is about sexuality, yet I saw a huge chunk talking about linguistics and theory. In the next lecture, I will lay out a bit more of the history of LGBTQ plus political organizing with a particular emphasis on trans history to situate this discussion more. By looking at the history of political organizing, we will come back to people's experiences. The theory has its place, but it isn't the full story. So as I promised, today's lecture will end with a segment of Ravina's Honey. Have a great day.
All of these video songs and images and graphics used in podcasts and transcript belong to their respective owners, and I do not claim any right at them. The opening bell sound is schoolbell.wave from 13F Panska's Transco Michaela, and the closing bell is from Inspector Day's Balkanar A.wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in Canadian copyright law that outlines the permitted and unauthorized use of copyright materials for specific mandated purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, privacy, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news report. For research and privacy, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an educational podcast that is ad-free.